all educators try, or good educators, try to connect with where people are. They ask questions. They try and understand where someone's at so they can help people build on that. And that's what your pitch needs to do. It needs to build on someone's existing sort of schemas and understanding. You're listening to Amplifying Research. I'm your host, Chris Barlow. And after 15 years working as a professional screenwriter, director, storyteller, I'm now on a mission to help make sure that incredible research generates real-world impact with the help of effective engagement and communication. So this podcast series brings together some of the best research communicators in the world, professional science communicators, researchers who have world-class experience with engagement on television, on the radio. And I'm also gonna bring in some left of field people, comedians who specialize in science comedy, storytellers who are fascinated by research, lots and lots of amazing people who can make sure that your research communications and engagement are gonna help you achieve your goals. And so a couple of years ago, I heard about a book by Daniel Priestley called Key Person of Influence. The book outlines the key steps that he suggests are critical to building your profile as a world leader. Everything from figuring out your niche and constructing a killer pitch to publishing, building your profile and even forming the right partnerships. And so today's guest is Professor Philip Dawson and why I wanted to have him on the show is because after I read the book, it occurred to me, he's already done it all. He's done these steps. He never read the book. He hasn't done any formal marketing training. He just has his sixth sense for how to handle engagement and communication in an incredibly effective way. He's also a a very funny boy too, which makes for a great listen. Now, Phil is the co-director of the Center for Research and Assessment and Digital Learning at Deakin. He's undoubtedly a world leader in his field. Uh, He's spoken at pretty much every Australian university and unis all around the world, and he's been featured in the media countless times from the BBC, Vox, Vice, Financial Times, the list goes on and on. So today, we're going to be doing a very deep dive into exactly how you can become a key person of influence in your field of research. And one of my favorite parts of the conversation explores how research organizations can foster multiple key people of influence. It's a great conversation, so enjoy, friends. Professor Philip Dawson, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Chris. I'm so excited. I'm excited as well. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. There's so many things to chat about, and the first thing I want to talk to you about is your status as a key person of influence. If people want to ask about feedback, cheating, the use of artificial intelligence in these areas, you're pretty much one of the go-to people in Australia to talk to, right? I think something that I've had to work on to get there. It's not something that sort of comes naturally or is handed out. But yeah, when people want to talk to someone about my areas, you know, they want an expert on feedback or they want an expert on like, how are we going to address artificial intelligence in assessment in higher ed? Those are sort of two of my big issues. They come to me and it's not that I'm the number one scholar in terms of publications or citations or research grant funding. It's that my work's out there, it's accessible, and that I make it part of my job to be that key person of influence. Wow, you make it part of your job. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, because I I think too often academics think, well, well, my job is to do the research Mm -hmm. and publish it and get the grants and all of that. But I sort of think, you know, most of my wages come from the Australian taxpayer, and it's, it's my job to make sure that they see benefit in my work. If my work's inaccessible to them or they're not aware of who I am, then 
And I'm kind of just taking their money and going off and, and doing personal passion projects with it. it. It's ultimately got to be useful to people. I can see impact is super important to your motivations as a researcher. Yeah, yeah. Because I think I'm interested in some things that can be taken in a fairly esoteric way. You know, I've spent an evening debating the definition of feedback on the streets of Helsinki uh, with a very yeah. overbearing scholar who didn't like my definition. I've done that. I've done the hard conceptual and definitional yards. But mm -hmm. yeah, ultimately, feedback's something that is in everyone's day-to-day -day life. So, I've got to be out there with the research, connecting it with people and making sure that they, they find me and find the work. Earlier, you said this is not something that comes naturally to you. Is this motivation around making sure the whole of society can benefit from the work you're doing? Was, was that what kicked this off or were there other reasons you decided to go down this path? Look, on a, on a lovely podcast like yours, I'd love to say, yes, it is an entirely altruistic motivation, but that wouldn't be telling the whole truth. I mean, I think it's also that for keeping your job, for career advancement, for securing funding and, and all of that, you do need to be seen by others as someone that's doing good work. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just have to. I think in a lot of academics, especially research-only academics, I'm a, I'm a research-only academic, um, there's a, a fear that the time will come when your institution either can't pay for you or chooses not to pay for you anymore. So, you're forever hustling. You're forever yeah. trying to find a way to demonstrate your value. And, and the, the KPI stuff is really how I do that. I think that's something almost any researcher can relate to, right? That, that need to hustle, that fear of what's going to happen after this grant is up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, my household has made the terrible financial decision of having two full-time research-only people as oh, the breadwinner. No. Oh, no. So, so, this is something that we just, we just got to do. So, you referred me to the KPI book and I had to leaf through it and I'm like, yeah, there's some things in here that I'm already doing. Yeah, I give a lot of talks, I write books, I try and really come across a, a niche that, that works for me. And then, you know, there's some things that maybe I could consider doing. I'd really like to drill into your motivations. And I'm thinking from the point of view of an early career researcher, someone who's, uh, they didn't necessarily get into research to go spruik their wares, so to speak. Maybe they're impact driven, like you've talked about. Maybe they're just curious and they really like investigating an area they're fascinated by. What would you say to these researchers who haven't gone on this path yet? Yeah, it's, it's a really difficult thing. And so, you're in research often because you think the thing is really, really interesting. Mm. And yeah, that, that's me. One of the areas that I'm in, cheating, I'm like obsessed with how people cheat. <laughs> and, and I could, if, if impact and KPI stuff and whatever didn't matter, I could still happily research that on my own. I could- you know, find out all the weird and wonderful ways that different people try and cheat. It's just intrinsically such a fascinating thing. But it's about the pragmatics of like, got to keep a job, um, got to find that next thing, that next bit of funding, whatever else. So, there's, there's a bit of that. It's also a thing of you never understand something as well as you do when you're explaining it to someone in simple language. You know, when you're writing that piece on the conversation or a blog, 
or you're giving a talk not to an expert research audience but to a lay audience, you can't hide behind a whole bunch of abstract theoretical terminology. You you just can't. I'm trying to think of all of the crazy jargon that's used in my field, you know, teleoeffective structures or, or whatever else. It, you can't use that sort of bullshit. You've got to I'm just trying to picture what would happen if if you're doing some consulting or you're speaking to a general audience and what what was the word you used? Teleo? Teleo Teleo-effective structures. Yeah, that's not going to work, is it? It, It's just not going to. It's just not going to. And yeah, the thing is, you build up that ability to explain your work in simple ways and you're using it on your uh, national interest test statement for your ARC grant, although hopefully those are being gotten rid of. Um, but you're using it in all sorts of lay audience statements. You're using it in an ethics application because those ethics applications are read by lay people. Um, I think the idea of a researcher that can just be able to talk to other researchers, I don't think that sort of person can exist anymore. You might be able to get a PhD by doing that, but you certainly can't hold down a job doing that anymore. I totally hear that. And... I think you've touched on something really, really important when you're talking about you'll never understand something better than when you are forced to explain it using plain language. Uh, In my experience talking with researchers or academics more broadly, even in the teaching and learning space, even people who are enthusiastic about communications, often I can kind of see in their eyes, it's a bit of a pain. Like, wouldn't it be nice if we just didn't have to do this, if we didn't have to take our beautiful ideas and and kind of put them through the the meat grinder and turn them into some palatable hot dog for the masses. But I think what you're touching on is there are advantages for the researchers themselves. If, If they can go on this journey and think about how do they reach people with their work, it can actually inform the work itself. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that gets to ideas around sort of research dissemination too. Yeah. There's, it's too easy to go down kind of a one directional research dissemination thing of researcher gets grant, researcher does research, researcher publishes paper, and then researcher writes an article in the conversation that they never even go in and check the comments on. Yeah. And, and that's, that's often the thing. And I have to say, why don't researchers check the comments on their articles in the conversation? That's really <laughs> weird to me. People write back to you with like, oh, I think this about your article and then blank. Such oh, a that's waste. interesting. Oh, it is. But you know, what, what we've got to do instead is think about that sort of engaged dissemination as a process throughout the whole project. So, you know, I've got an ARC grant on how we can help people to deal with feedback. Uh, it's a four-year grant. We can't just wait until year four and then share our Mm. findings. We've got to be doing events, engagement, all sorts of things from the first year. You know, it's having your expert reference group of people who are experts, but it's also having your sort of impact reference group of people who are going to connect with the project and make use of it and help kind of steer what you're doing. 100%. I've got an uh, Albert Einstein quote here. This may be too provocative for some of our listeners, but the quote is, if a theory cannot be explained to a child, then the theory is probably worthless. You think he's putting it <laughs> putting it too strongly there? Look, I, I think that's an interesting one. Um, th- there's a, a quote that I will garble a, a bit here, but it's it's that you should explain things as simply as possible, but no simpler. And mm. you know, I think too often we don't do that. We we either keep things in some crazy um, 
set of, of words. And, you know, I referred to that teleoaffective structures thing is from this body of work about socio-material practice theory. The jargon that's used by those theorists in explaining their work has meant that it hasn't had the take up that it could. It's an amazing body of theory. Mm. I would explain the body of theory by saying, you got to look at how people do work and try and understand that. And, and that's it. That. But they've just got a bunch of crazy jargon all around it. Now, all the nuances of socio-material practice theory would probably bore a child. Sure. And it, it bores me. But <laughs> what they can do between sort of explaining it all and, you know, oversimplifying is just change the words. Maybe, maybe even do this crazy thing of like talking to the potential end users about the mm. language that you use and like, mm. hey, does this language actually land for you? Yeah, you're, you're speaking my language right now. That is something I endorse heavily. I think we could do a whole episode just on that. <laughs> so, let's let's put a post on it up on the wall and return to that topic because that's a big one. Um, we've talked about the benefits to society. We've also talked about the potential benefits to you making sure that you have a sustainable career. What about the research institutes, research centers, labs? Has your status as a key person of influence benefited Cradle, the research center you're a co-director at? Yeah, look, I think it has. So, we get approaches from different organizations thanks to the, the presence and the, the status that I have. But also, I'd, I'd say all of my colleagues are, are working this angle to some degree. I'd say particularly my co-director, Professor David Bowd, he was probably a bit of a model for me in terms of how do you get to establish yourself as an amazing scholar. And you know, thanks to having sort of Dave there and myself to an extent, we were able to assemble a team of people that just really wanted to work with people with that sort of presence. We're advertising a couple of jobs at the moment and we're getting hammered with requests to come and work for us. People wow. really want to come and work here. When you're recruiting, if all you've got is the fact that you're offering a job, are you really going to get the best people? Whereas if, you've, if you're recruiting and you have a team of people who are seen as world experts, who people really want to go and be with, that's part of how you're going to get the best people. Um, and, and then I guess the other piece of the KPI stuff for the center is it allows us to demonstrate in funding applications and in trying to work up partnerships with industry that we are able to do this. We've had this sort of impact before. You're going to be a part of this sort of thing. You're going to get a bit of that halo. Love that. Now, a lot of research centers seem to revolve around the director. Um, you could say the hero researcher. Is that a fair assessment in your eyes? Unfortunately, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I think a lot of centers have the person who set the center up mm. and it's sort of, it's an entity that pursues that person's research interest. What I love about your story is I think it plays against expectations because if I was uh, an early career researcher listening to this or even if I was a co-director, you know, I may hear the term key person of influence and think, well, okay, that's not me. That's the director at the center. How is this going to help me? And what I love about what you and Dave have done at Cradle is you've created an environment that's fostering multiple key people of influence. And what 
what a dream from a recruitment standpoint. I know so many research centers are struggling with recruitment all the time. And I'm just thinking about what an attractive prospect that is. Thinking, one, I'm going to get to work with world leaders in a great environment. Two, wow, okay, it's not just one key person of influence. It's not just two key people of influence at this research center. It's a whole team. And maybe I can get some of this halo, as you say. Maybe I can, in time, become a key person of influence too. Yeah. And when I was um, sort of scoping out my first job, it wasn't post-PhD, it was during my PhD because I did not use my time well and I ran out of my PhD scholarship and needed work. Um, my PhD supervisor, Professor Laurie Lockyer, said to me, you got to figure out with jobs, do they want you to do a specific task or is this like a real academic job? And and I want to provide real academic jobs mm, for people. I right. don't want you to come and work at my center and do this kind of parcel of work for me and then we're done and, and see you later. I want to develop people who have their own program of work. Let's dive into the nuts and bolts. Long before I ever talked to you about this book, you were doing the hard work and making things happen. Can you take us back in time and, and tell us about some of the key experiences that helped you build this status as a key person of influence? Okay, so I had the challenge of doing a, a PhD in an area that I didn't have any previous qualifications in. So I did a PhD in education with my honours degree in computer science. So, it always felt like a bit of an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. I could only really understand the stuff that was written in that kind of lay language for me. So, that, wow. that to an extent sort of shaped me. I didn't have this deep wealth of education theory to build on. I was a computer scientist. We don't really read and write a lot. Um, now, fast forward to sort of my first post-PhD job, I had a boss who basically said, Phil, you got to get a research grant or things aren't looking too good for you, which I think is a message that a lot of uh, academics get at various times in their career. So, I was scoping out, how can I actually do this? What would work? And I just really rolled with the wind. I think it, there's an interesting thing in terms of academic careers. At the start, you often go quite broad and take any opportunity you can. And then later in your career, you often narrow down to being an expert in a particular thing. I was getting this advice, Phil, you've got to hyper-specialize immediately. And I think that's terrible advice. I think early career academics have often got to go with where are the interesting opportunities? Where is there some funding? Where is there a new thing I might be able to break some ground on rather than like, I did my PhD in this, so I'm going to publish about it for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I found that if I was willing to write the research grant, a whole bunch of senior scholars were willing to join it with me. So, it was basically like, what's the big theme uh, that a research funder is willing to fund? Who are the big names on that? And I'm going to write the best damn research grant I can. Had some excellent mentoring from a variety of people and mentoring is a really big part of a lot of people's success stories, whether they acknowledge it or not. 
Okay, there's so much I'd like to dig into here. Before we talk about mentoring, I want to talk about specialization. Even outside of the research field, specialization is something that's hotly debated. My background is as a creative, as, as a filmmaker. No one wants to specialize, but if you talk to someone from branding or marketing, that's all they're going to tell you. And so it's interesting to hear you talk about the dangers of specializing too early. One concept I've heard people talk about is a T-shaped specialization. So you build a horizontal breadth of knowledge so you can kind of understand the context and the lay of the land. And once you have that base, then you drill down into something specific. So that's the vertical part of the T. Is that kind of how you approached your your niche? Look, I, I guess I did to an extent, yeah. Um, but it took me a while to dig that deep hole of the T. Uh, it's probably like a, a letter M shape or something, you know, with <laughs> a lot of things going down. Um, I, I had a, a really good mentor, Professor Robert Nelson, uh, who I, I once witnessed that he was writing about basically everything. He's written about urban planning, art history, sustainability, um, all sorts of weird, wacky and wonderful things. And I said to him, how do you know like, when you can legitimately say something or do some work in a field? And he was like, when you feel you have something to say. So, for him, the bar of like, when am I a scholar in this space mm. was really low. And that kind of emboldened me to think, you know what? I am going to research these variety of different things that are still within the domain of education, but I didn't do my PhD on them. I'm going to research this variety of things, kind of see where I get some traction, see what sticks. Fantastic. What a helpful mentor to have and what a profound comment to hear as an early career researcher. It was so heartening because so often as an early career researcher, you feel like you are gate kept out of conversations. Whereas Robert was saying to me, hey, come on in, say something. So, we, we did crazy things. We wrote an article in the conversation about educational waste. Not a topic that I continued to pursue, but what a fascinating idea. We just thought, Let's go down lots of different avenues. And again, I'd stress this this works at that very early career stage, but okay. it would be dangerous if I was still doing that. And I, I do see some colleagues who, not necessarily in my centre, but elsewhere, who are researchers in my field of higher education research, and they will research everything in that field. And as a result, mm. they're not known for anything in particular. Okay. Let's focus on this for a moment then. So, dangerous to specialize too early, in your opinion, but also dangerous to continue to explore too many things too late in your career. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard to find that sort of inflection point. At what moment do I say, I've explored enough and I'm mm. willing to commit to not necessarily one thing, but a smaller range of things. Um, so, you know, I've I witnessed people who, when they're asked, you know, what do you do? You're, you're at a, a barbecue or something and someone says, what do you do? And all they can give is just a, a really broad thing. You know, I'm an education researcher. Well, my gosh, education is like such a broad set of things. But if you specialize in just a few of them, then you'll be the go-to person potentially for that few things. Love that. Would you say this is the key advantage to finding a niche? Yeah, it is. It is. Because I can never be the best education researcher in the world. That's 
that's not something I have the capability to do. I think I'm pretty good. Um, but, you know, I, I tend to nine to five my job. I'm not actually out there to work epic hours. So, I'm never going to be able to keep up with the people that work their 12-hour days every day. Um, but I can be the best person at like mm. the Venn diagram intersection of three things. When you put it like that, it almost sounds like a, a relief, like a weight <laughs> off the shoulders because, <laughs> oh my goodness, what, what a wild proposition. Yes, I will become the world leader in researching education, full stop. Oh my goodness, so much pressure. Oh, it, it, it absolutely is. And look, to, to be honest, by some measures, my co-director, Professor David Bowdy, is actually that person, <laughs> the, the world leader in education. Um, and there's no way I'm going to reach his levels and, and I'm okay with that. It is, it is that relief. And the big thing that relief does is you get approaches say, from potential PhD students. You know, I get, I get a lot mm. of those approaches. I probably got three of them today. And I can say, well, actually, I'm sorry. I want to do a great job for the seven PhD students I've currently got. Um, so, I, part of my filter for who I do and don't take is, are you really interested in the same things mm. that I'm interested in? Do you want to go down that journey with me? Whereas, you know, when I started supervising PhD students as an early career academic. I had to do with what a lot of early career academics do, which is take on kind of anyone who's interested in something broadly the same as you. 100%. This is making me think about not just the benefits to the individual researcher of finding their niche, but for other people as well. Because if we follow that line of thinking a little bit further, when people are taking PhD candidates from across the board, um, is that PhD candidate going to get the best possible experience? I would say, you know, m maybe not. Maybe they're going to get a better experience from someone who's really passionate about the same areas they're passionate about. Is that fair? I think so. And, you know, something we haven't talked heaps about is that, that thing of passion. Because mm. ultimately, I do the niche that I do because it excites me. It, it, yeah. it makes, it, it ignites something in me that few other things in the world do. Um, and that's, that's just awesome. And I want to be around other people who are interested in that and other people can see, you know, I think part of the KPI thing is people can see that you love it. 100%. They can see this is what you live for. Who lives for the entire broad discipline? We live for some narrow niche. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, there may be some people who could say, look, I'm just really into physics, for example, but I do think most people will be able to identify you know, one or a small number of, of areas that really get them going. And from talking to you, it's not hard to see the passion in your eyes. So, I think finding this niche when you're at the right point in your career has a number of benefits. It can take some pressure off you. It can help you become the go-to person. It can help the people you work with have a more fulfilling collaborative relationship, whether that be a PhD candidate you're going to supervise, whether it be a hospital you're working with, you know, if you're the go-to person for that kind of translational research, when it comes to uh, commercialization, finding the right industry partners, it, you're going to make people's life easier because they're going to be able to identify who is the person we need for this particular task. Absolutely. And I think as well in specializing in a research center, you make room for other people. Oh, yes, definitely. If your center director is like, I am everything in this center. Well, how is there a role for junior academics to, to say, yeah, I'm going to do something that's 
that's compatible with, that's complementary to the center's mission, but he's like my piece of it. And they're not just like a lesser version of the mm. center director. Because I think treating junior academics like they're just mini clones of the director yeah. is, is terrible. You want to develop them so they've got their thing that they're the world leader on. I love that. I might even print that on a t-shirt. One thing we haven't, uh, I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, Phil, but one thing we haven't got to a def definitive answer on yet is how do you decide when is the right moment to make that transition? Yeah. Uh, I, I wish I could say something, but everyone's career is quite different. You know, mm -hmm. people spend different amounts of time at the different academic levels. I spent a long time at academic level B, uh, but then I spent like six weeks at academic level C. So, it, it's hard to say like where the where the right moment is that you should do that specialization. I think part of it is around funding. If you're mm -hmm. on a pretty good line of funding around a particular topic, that can be a really good signal. Right. Um, some of it's around, you know, are you emerging through some of those key person of influence sort of things? Are you getting a lot of requests for talks on a particular topic? Are you starting to become kind of typecast as the person who's the expert on this thing? Um, and then some of it's also about looking forward at what are the emerging things. I have a, a colleague who did a great job of this around artificial intelligence. She could see, this is Professor Margaret Bierman, one of my colleagues at Cradle, she could see that AI in education going to be huge. She saw this a few years back. Uh, she could connect her background, her initial training as a computer scientist and mathematician, but now an education researcher. She was able to kind of connect the dots on all of that and be ahead of the curve. And I think some of it's about sort of predicting the future for your discipline as well. Okay. So, there's not a template that a researcher can follow, but there are a number of indicators they can look for, whether it's success with funding, more and more requests for talks, looking at uh, the evolving broader context to see where interest is heading. Yeah, and I guess the mechanics of the specialising, mm -hmm. it's really a process of cutting things out rather than adding yeah. things. And, and that's the thing. So, it's that moment where you go, where, where I'm me and I'm saying, Actually, from now on, I'm only accepting students on these topics. Actually, thank you for the invitation to co-author that paper, but I actually can't do that one, even though it sounds amazing, because I've got to do more on, on this topic. N even not going in on grant applications with people, which is a very hard thing to do. It's about that, that act of saying no. That's the mechanics of specialization. How do you cope with that from an emotional level? Um. I'm inherently lazy, so saying no <laughs> feels very, very good. It, um, it's like the, the hyper complexity of my life just gets stripped down a little bit. I'm like, yeah, just saying no to that. The grant stuff pulls at my sort of sense of self-preservation a little bit, so that's probably the hardest piece of it. Mm -hmm. But when you commit to like a three or four-year grant, if you do that on something that's not in your specialization, you are pushing that sort of specialization point down the road by three or four years. And that's, that's a long time. That is a very long time. All right. A little while ago, you talked about giving your pitch at a barbecue, being able to, I guess, give your, your problem statement um, in a way that's, that's simple and that anyone can understand. Now, if we think about what you've just said in terms of having to say no, which is something 
Okay, maybe for you, this is a great experience, but I know a lot of researchers who really struggle to say no. I think if you've defined your pitch or your problem statement in a way that's really clear and it, it not just makes it clear to everybody else, but it makes it clear to you. So when you get an opportunity, whether that is to, to be uh, named on a grant or someone wants to be a PhD candidate under your supervision, whatever the case may be, you can use this as a bit of a check. And I, in, in my experience and from people I've worked with, being able to say, thank you very much for the opportunity. I really value what you're doing and I really appreciate your interest but this is just not inside my area, that's not personal. And I think that can be a lot less emotional, a lot easier for people to do. Yeah, yeah. You're not commenting on the quality of their work yeah, or them as a it. person. You're just saying, I have this mission and, and for me to fulfill that mission, I can't go on all these side quests. That's it. You brought it back to some Dungeons and Dragons. But I think it's a valuable thing in Dungeons and Dragons, in video games and all that. There's an infinite amount of things you could do that are all fascinating and stimulating and whatever. You've got to finish that main quest. And I think too many academics don't actually get to finish their main quest. Okay, so we've talked about finding a niche. Can you give us any specific tips on how to word that pitch in your experience? How do, how do you put your problem statement out into the world? Okay, so there's, there's a really great piece by Lorelei Lingard, and she might have some, some co-authors on that one, uh, called the Problem Gap Hook Heuristic. And this is actually not to do with writing for a, a lay audience, but it's to do with writing that first paragraph in a journal article. And the argument in that is you've got to have a really clear problem, um, you know, a problem that I address in the grant that we got recently is that feedback is really powerful, but to make best use of it, you, you've got to have a certain set of capabilities and people don't develop those capabilities naturally. So, you have a problem, you have a gap. The gap is what don't we know? And I can say with feedback, we don't know how to develop those capabilities in people in the long term or even really in the short term. And then you have a hook. And the hook is, if we do this, uh, you know, if we do this grant, if you read this paper, then we'll be able to. And the hook for that one is, we're going to develop and test interventions to help people make the most of feedback in the long term and as they transfer between like education contexts and work contexts. So, that's kind of a, a grant level uh, problem gap hook, but you can do it for yourself as well. You paint the problem, the problem is the current state of things that, you know, you're, you're researching this thing because there's a real problem in the world. The gap is what don't we know? And then the hook is, you know, thanks to my research, we can do this. If you work with me, if you fund me, if you study as a student with me, this is what we're going to be able to do. And what's really important about that framing is traditional academic writing often trains people to focus on the gap in the literature. And I always tell my students, there are literally an infinite amount of gaps in the literature. There's so many things out there that we don't know. Not all of them are worth knowing. Not all of them are worth investing time on. So, don't foreground that as the thing. And too many scholars do that. 
foreground, what's the problem? And then finish with, and if we do this, here's what we can do. You found this effective, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, it is my main thing I do when I'm writing for really any sort of audience. It's my my simple hack or blah, blah, clickbait title that I could use. It just works because um, people care about problems. That's That's the way that your work interfaces with people often. I'm sure for some disciplines of study, maybe this doesn't work if you're uh, an historian or something, maybe it doesn't work. But for people who are in the sort of sciences, social sciences, health sciences, I think that sort of framing can be quite powerful. Can you tell us about some of the different contexts you've used this framework? An example is working with a technology company that does sort of mm-hmm. technology in the space. So, I do a lot of work around cheating. There's a lot of technologies that are used in the cheating space. And if I'm trying to work with them on how, how might we be able to build something up together, that sort of framing is really necessary because we've got to establish a shared problem. But I mm-hmm. kind of come in with this is the way I see it. This is what the problem is in this space that you work in. Um, the gap is, you know, sometimes sort of a, an opportunity they might see as, oh, if we do this, no one else is doing it, we can fill that gap. But the hook is really how, how can I hook them in how can I be like, yeah, let's do this. Here's the market advantage. Um, here's what we gain from doing this work together. Um, so, I, I guess I've worked there. I've done, you know, you're writing something for the conversation or you're talking mm-hmm. to a journalist. A journalist rings you up and, you know, you've got just like a few seconds with them before they get bored. Journalists get so bored. <laughs> I'm wheeling that one out again. Now, have you memorized all or part of uh, this statement? No, and this is a really interesting one. So, I've toyed around over my career with trying to get uh, copy-pastable, memorizable things versus speaking in the moment with the person. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Alan Alda has this book, uh, If I Understood What You Meant, Would I Have This Look on My Face or something like that. You know, the guy who was Hawkeye on MASH. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he's he's quite anti-memorizing pictures and all that. He's very much about you've got to be in there in the moment with the person. You've got to be looking them in the eye. You've got to be taking stock of how they're reacting to what you're putting out. And I think a, a rehearsed pitch stops you from doing that. So, I agree. I'm trying very hard to connect with people, to understand yeah, when I lay down that problem statement, which side of that problem statement are they on? I want to be true to myself, but if we take the work that I do on cheating, different people view the causes of cheating differently. So, some people think that cheating is just individual moral failure, and some people think cheating is a systems failure where people cheat because the system has put them in a situation where they've got no other option. And the way that I follow up the next part of my pitch is very dependent on where they sit on that sort of continuum. 100%. 100%. If I was a researcher, uh, I wouldn't necessarily want to memorize a script. Oh. Um, this is an area I think about all day, every day. I'm passionate about. I don't want to be on camera or talking to a journalist and 
feel like I'm some puppet just reciting lines. And I love the fact that you've found an ability to keep the key ideas present at all times, but you're listening, you are engaging with the other person or, or the, the people you're speaking with and responding to them in the moment. Can you give some like really practical tips? How have you been able to do that? How can you keep all the right things in mind and still be in the moment talking with someone? So, yeah, firstly, it's hard. I totally think it is. And practice is probably a big part of this. I mentioned being at the barbecue talking with someone about it and and that is an opportunity to hone it. You want to have bored everyone around you with this thing, you know, trying on different versions of it. You want to try that out a lot. Um, You want to be like trying to connect with the other person as well. You want to be asking questions. People think of a pitch as like, I only give people my, my tight, you know, five-minute slide deck or something. But a pitch is to a degree sales. And I have had the um, discomfort of having a lot of sales calls over the years. And one thing <laughs> I've noticed is the ones that never work start off with the slide deck and at the end of like a half hour, they're like, do you have any questions? The really successful ones start with questions to me to build that rapport and the pitch has to have that. But I mean, even if, if we go away from sales, we go to my home domain of education. Mm-hmm. One thing we know about education is that prior knowledge and sort of people's background is the single biggest influence on their learning. So, mm. all educators try or good educators try to connect with where people are. They ask questions. They try and understand where someone's at. So, they can help people build on that and that's what your pitch needs to do. It needs to build on someone's existing sort of schemas and understandings. Um, so, yeah. So, you, you asked me about how do, I, how do I do this? How do I get good at this? It's practice. It's talking to people. It's, sometimes I'll write out a few versions of it. Mm-hmm. So, when I have to write a title for something or a little outline for something, I will- you know, write 10 versions of it or I'll write 20 versions of it and I'll, I'll pick good ones and then I might combine sort of bits of them. If you jump with just your first idea, your first explanation, it's often kind of terrible. So, yeah, giving myself a lot of opportunities to try it on, to practice. I also find just giving a lot of talks really helps mm. me hone my pitch. Okay, before we move on to talks, I want to focus on a few of the things you said there because I- Totally agree. And I think professionals from many different fields would agree with what you're saying as well. Earlier in this conversation, you talked about, well, you didn't use this term, but you kind of were talking about audience research. Wouldn't it be nice if we could go out and test language that would be the most resonant with the people we want to communicate with? And going out to the barbecue or the birthday party or whatever it may be and having these conversations, not, not just delivering these pitches, but having these conversations is not only a great way for you to get more comfortable with speaking it aloud, it's just an instant feedback machine. You can see the look on their face. You can see if they're leaning forward and getting more interested or you can see if their feet are pointing the other direction and they want to get to the esky and get a beer and get the hell out of this conversation, which is so valuable because as someone with a writing background, the blank page is every writer's worst nightmare. Uh, It's better to be talking with someone. 
All right. We've talked about the pitch. We may have lost half our audience when you compared it to sales, but hopefully they've stuck with <laughs> us and they've heard the nuance of the conversation. I'm going to suggest we do a whole other episode on giving talks because it's such a big topic. But let's talk a little bit about publishing now because we, of course, have the traditional academic publishing in journals, but you've also talked about other types of publishing and spreading the word about your work, including the conversation. Can you talk a bit about those two types of disseminating your research? Yeah. So, yeah, you got to do the traditional academic publication. It's, it's the currency, it's the thing that we do, and I certainly invest in that. I don't publish as much as some of my peers, though. I uh, try really hard with the academic publishing to publish things that firstly really excite me. I don't write papers that I'm not excited about. Um, but secondly, that I think are actually going to get that impact, that citation. So those little um, you know, publications that yeah, some people have got tons of them that have never been cited on the CV. I try really hard to identify what those are going to be before I commit to being involved in something. So I think that's, that's the first big thing. You don't want to spend a bunch of time writing a journal article that no one's going to read and no one's going to cite, right? Yeah, I, I am lazy. It's You just want <laughs> – and, and that also comes down to the types of studies that I do. Mm, so, sure. in some disciplines, there are types of study that are very important to do, mm -hmm. but they're incredibly time-consuming for the amount of sort of knowledge gain that we get out of them. Mm. And I – try to avoid doing those. And I feel a little bit bad saying that because it does, it is still necessary to have those like evaluation studies or replication sure. studies, that sort of thing. It's very valuable. But part of the negatives of the scientific world is that they don't have as much impact. So, I do try to think kind of rationally, go through my publications, go through the publications of scholars that I like. What's in their top 20 on their Google Scholar? Mm. You know, which which ones, what can I learn from what the titles of these are, what the different methodologies are. So, you know, for me in my field, I've learned I can write really good conceptual papers that are so fun to write, that are pretty quick to write and get heaps of citations, or I can do large-scale quantitative um, survey or evaluation things that take so much of my time and have very little impact. And I have sort of started prioritizing the easier, more fun, more impactful ones. I hear what you're saying in terms of not wanting to neglect some of the important work that is very difficult or time consuming. But from your point of view, I, I think that's entirely understandable. And that, that's how I try and uh, approach my work as well. We don't have time in this life to do everything we'd like to or everything that's necessary. Uh, and I think it comes back to niching down again. If you can identify what's that specific area? But in addition to that, like what types of activities in that specific area are you going to be able to do to generate the most impact? Like, I think that's a good use of your time. I don't think that's just being lazy. I think that's a really interesting addition there. Yeah, yeah. I've never thought about that as, as part of the niche too, but maybe that's an overlay that we have over our niches. Yeah. I'm interested in these things and I do this type of work in that space. Yeah, well, so we've used the word niche a lot. Uh, I'm, I'm, we already used the word sales and we may have lost our audience. So I'm, I'm loath to use the word marketing. But if we borrow the concept of positioning, 
which comes from marketing strategy and depending on who you look to, sometimes business strategy more broadly, it's not just the niche, which is what segment of the market, and I'm using quotation marks here, uh, that you serve, but it's also what you do for that that segment of the market. And I, I think this is in play here because sure, you can pick your area of focus, your um, your problem statement, but what are you going to do to address that problem statement? I think that's a key ingredient. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that's something to think about. Thank you for that one. We, we try here on the pod. We try to give people <laughs> something to think about. Now, what about, uh, you know, the example you gave of the conversation? If I'm a researcher, why should I spend my time uh, thinking about disseminating my work to the general public? What's the benefit? Well, there's some, you know, lofty goals of wanting people to see the benefit of your work and all of that. Mm-hmm. And then there's also just got to get that altmetric score, you know, that that thing on every journal article yep. tracks all those different uses and citations and all that. So, every time you tweet your thing, the altmetrics goes up and you try and tweet things that other people are going to engage in and, and all of that. You get your article in the conversation, that gets it to a different audience. I know that university vice chancellors won't read my work. Even though their field is actually higher education, now they're a vice chancellor. They should be out there reading the higher education research, but they're busy. But they do read the conversation. So I know if I want something to go across the desks of all the vice chancellors, I just got to put in the conversation, have a really provocative title, and they will read it. And that's the only way that I can engage with them. Wow. Now I think we've we've kind of come right back to. Uh, the start almost, the the earlier point you made about being able to express your work uh, for the layperson. And turns out there are benefits not just for the layperson, but for vice chancellors as well. Vice chancellors are lay people. (laughs) (laughs) Shots fired. Shots Shots fired, fired, yeah. We may have to cut this out of the podcast. (laughs) All right. We've been talking for quite a while. Let me try and pull some of these threads together and summarize. Even though the idea of becoming a key person of influence is probably not why researchers got into the game, there are a lot of benefits for themselves in terms of taking the pressure off, in terms of their career sustainability, in in terms of leaning into their passion, shall we say. There's benefits for the institution they're based uh, within, and there's benefits for society. In terms of how do you become a key person of influence, if we had to drill it down to some of the main activities or areas of focus we've talked about or dedicating time to finding your niche to exploring for a while and then identifying what is the right area for you to focus on looking for those indicators like where is the funding coming from where am i getting uh, the most citations from where am i getting the most interest from more broadly and and where is the field going if if we zoom out and, and think about things outside of just this individual researcher's work so Finding that niche, being able to talk about that niche, to be able to put forward that problem statement, that pitch, uh, have that conversation, shall we say, in a way that's really engaging and you can be in the moment and let that passion shine through and be really, really clear about it. That's really important. Giving talks, which is something we're going to return to in another podcast, and, and then publishing and looking at multiple types of publishing and the different benefits, obviously, Everyone understands the the benefits of of publishing journal articles, but don't just uh, write a journal article. Think about what other mediums may get you the benefits 
that are going to be most impactful? What's going to get you the most bang for the buck? Might be something on a conversation. It might be going on a podcast. It might be, it might be tweeting and getting the... Does the vice chancellor retweet uh, when you put something out there? I saw that the vice chancellor of Sydney <laughs> Uni follows me today. Wow. And I was like, oh, wow. And he's never engaged with me on Twitter. But he's following me, so it's got to count for something. That's a step. And who runs their Twitter accounts as well? I don't know. They're paid more than politicians. Maybe they um, have a, a social media team that runs their accounts. That's a topic for another day. But yeah, I imagine there are some approvals required before they hit that love heart icon on an individual tweet. <laughs> um, Professor Philip Dawson, thank you. This has been amazing. Before we leave the listeners, I'd love it if you could just say one thing to an individual researcher, something to to leave them with, and also something for the exec who run research centres and research institutes. Talk to the people, Phil. Yeah, all right. So, I guess to the researcher, I'd say this is going to take time and it's going to take time that you take from somewhere else. And it's okay to do a tiny little bit less research while you do this. You've got you to give yourself permission to invest in this side of yourself because this is like a multiplier of all the other effort that you're doing. I reckon I probably spend oh, maybe 10% or 5% less time on research than I otherwise would thanks to all of this stuff that I do. But thanks to it, people read all of my stuff and they engage with it. So do that. And to the execs, I'd say this is about your center's sustainability, ultimately. If you don't establish yourself as that, when that cull comes, when there's belt tightening or, or whatever else, you won't be known. So th this is something that you, you kind of got to do. But you needn't do it just from that fear motivation. It's also a beautiful thing of you, you established your centre to achieve goals. This is what's going to help you achieve those goals. Well, Phil, I, I think the way you've put that is certainly going to resonate with a lot of researchers and uh, a lot of directors and co-directors of, of centres and institutes. Thank you so much for being so generous and, and open with your, your experience and sharing everything you've learnt over the years. I definitely would love to have you back to, to dig into some of these things a little bit more. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been an absolute joy. You've been listening to Amplifying Research. I'm your host, Chris Parlow. Thanks again to Professor Philip Dawson for sharing so many amazing insights. You can find him at philipdawson.com and at all the socials. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on LinkedIn or via my website, amplifyingresearch.com. I'd like to acknowledge that I produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respect to their elders, past and present. Big thank you to Maya Tarrell and Michelle Joy for being consulting producers on this show. Our theme song is by La Buclet, and our interstitial music is by Blue Steel, both courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Stay tuned for another episode next week. For the first 12 episodes, I'm going to be releasing the show weekly and then switching to every other week as I have quite a few other exciting things I'm going to be developing alongside this show. Thanks for listening, friends, and as always, stay curious.